Transforming care through genomic medicine, personalized therapeutics, health services and outcomes research, and innovations in healthcare delivery. We're Children's Mercy Kansas City, presenting our audio interview series, Transformational Pediatrics, with host Dr. Michael Smith. All right, today's topic is what a pain, appreciating pediatric adolescent lumbar disc herniation pain. My des- uh, guest is Dr. John Anderson. He is the assistant professor uh, professor of pediatric orthopedic surgery at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine, and also assistant professor at the University of Kansas, uh, Kansas School of Medicine. Dr. Anderson, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. So in the title, we have appreciating the pediatric, you know, uh, disc herniation pain. So that leads me to think that we must often, what, un, uh, under-recognize pediatric mm-hmm. um, disc herniation. So what's going on there? Well, I think, I think part of the problem is, is that uh, many people equate uh, disc herniations with an older age population. So a lot of my kids that I see have been having pain for, it's not uncommon, for up to two years at times before someone recognizes the fact that their leg pain is, is related to their spine and not their leg. And um, the average time to diagnosis, I believe, is in the range of almost 10 months, and that's an average, of course. But, yeah, a lot of these kids go a long time with this pain before anyone recognizes the fact that it's a disc herniation that's the source. So it's, it's you know, when, for a pediatrician, we just have to kind of change the way we think a little bit when we're present with chronic pain. I guess we're just not used to thinking of herniated discs in kids, right? It's an, it's an sure. adult thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So what are some of the related, so when we, let's, so let's back it up for a second and let's, let's just kind of define things a little bit here. Sure. When we talk about disc herniation pain, um, are there any, um, associated conditions that we also need to be aware of? Uh, ready to recognize when a child presents with like classic sciatic, uh, sciatic pain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are some risk factors. Um, you know, children that are um, have six lumbar vertebra rather than five seem to be at some predisposition. I'm not quite sure why, but um, you know, certainly <clears throat> kids that are um, you know have a, a, a are very athletic and active, you know, constantly in sports are also at some risk. But oddly enough, a lot of the kids that I see have no history of a specific event or uh, an incident of incidents of trauma that predisposes their or start the start of their symptoms. They they just kind of, just kind of a random occurrence, oddly enough. But I think that the main thing is if you see a child complaining of <clears throat> of back pain, it's radiating into their leg, particularly their buttocks down the posterior aspect of their thigh, down to their knee, or even down into their foot area. Um, It's certainly something to consider, specifically if they present with, you know, stiffness of their spine. Most of these kids really try to avoid flexing their trunk. So if you ask them to bend forward and touch their toes, they're not going to give you a pretty limited amount of effort because it's just so painful. And they also might complain to the... No, go ahead. Yeah, well, what about so just thinking about how they're presenting, right? So you mentioned so so a lot they have a lot of the same symptoms. If it's truly a herniated disc, pain down the leg, right? It's, it's almost the same presentation we see in adults. But with children, how do you distinguish, say, between a a true lumbar hernia a disc herniation versus something like scoliosis causing some of the problems? Sure. Well, typically, you know. Uh, the most common form of scoliosis we see is adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, which you know affects our our pre-adolescent age group. And 
you know, we don't really consider scoliosis to be that much of a of a pain generator. Uh, you know, scoli- when you look at the natural history studies of scoliosis, it's not really a disease that causes as much morbidity as you'd think. In a majority of the kids with scoliosis that we have, their incidence of back pain isn't really much different than kids without scoliosis. So, and I wouldn't expect scoliosis to be causing that kind of classic sciatica-type pain. And the one thing that is different with kids versus adults is they tend to have more back pain with their disc herniations than adults do. When you see adults, their primary complaint will be their leg pain with a, with a child or an adolescent. A lot of times their, their complaint is back pain with leg pain, and sometimes the back pain component of it is fairly large and a significant burden to them. Mm, that's so that's one way that they're different than, than adults. Uh, do you think the the presentation with back pain in kids versus adult is more uh, children or um, the inflammatory response is greater, maybe not as well controlled in a child as in an adult, so we're just having a lot of inflammatory pain? Is that maybe one of the reasons for the different in presentation? It could be, and, and I think one of the other uh, things is that if you see a, <clears throat> if you see a child with a disc herniation, especially if it's a large disc herniation on MRI, there's a good chance that child actually has what we call an apophyseal ring avulsion, where they've actually evolved some of the cartilage and the bone off of the end plate of their vertebra with their disc herniation. And that can be a source of significant back pain. So I think that's another reason you see more back pain in, in, in kids versus adults. Now, okay. I wanted to get back. You alluded to scoliosis. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these kids will present with what we call sciatic scoliosis, where they'll look right, okay. like they have a significant amount of trunk shift, and they'll be leaning away from the side of their disc herniation in order to decompress the nerve root that's being impinged upon. So if you see a teenage boy or girl that all of a sudden has an acute onset of scoliosis and they're having leg pain, that scoliosis is probably not true scoliosis. It could certainly be from their disc herniation. So let's talk, um, maybe walk us through a little bit how you approach this. If a, if a child is referred to you, you're suspecting that there is a disc herniation. What, what's the, the workup for you? Typically, a lot of times when I see a kid, they've already had an MRI. Um, if they haven't had an MRI, that's certainly, you know, the private diagnostic imaging of choice. Although, you know, most of the time you can just tell from your physical examination that the child has a disc herniation, but obviously, you know, confirming which level it's at, because usually it's going to be at L4-5 or L5-S1. So I get the imaging oftentimes to confirm the diagnosis and also to figure out which level is affecting them. If, they're, if they don't have neurologic symptoms, if they're not weak, they don't have sensory loss, uh, their bowel and bladder function are normal, uh, you can certainly try, you know, a course of, of short rest, anti-inflammatory such as ibuprofen. And then eventually, if you can get their symptoms under better control, you know, a course of physical therapy um, is certainly a reasonable next approach. If they don't get better, because, you know, in, in the adult world, the majority of the patients will get better within, you know, even a month of presentation, right. whereas that doesn't seem to be the case in kids. They, they, it's actually the one thing that kids seem to, to recover from more poorly than adults do. So <clears throat> I give them this short period of, of kind of conservative measures with therapy and rest and, um, you know, anti-inflammatories. If they're not better, um, you know, at some point within a month or six weeks, I, I think it's it's not an unreasonable thing to consider an epidural steroid injection um, to see if you can alleviate their symptoms. There's not a lot of good literature out there looking at the effects of steroids in in 
in uh, this age right. group, but I usually try because um, I've had you know a handful of kids that respond very well and avoid an operation. But you know if they fail all these non-operative measures, including you know steroid injections and things like that, then we consider doing a, what they call a microdiscectomy. Right. Any any plans from you know your practice or at Children's Mercy to maybe look into steroid use um, in in children so we can understand it a little bit better? I mean, it sounds like you've had some success with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, you know I usually have my kids that come in uh, fill out an outcomes instrument just so I can kind of follow their their progress more objectively. I think sometimes as the physician, it's off. It's easy to become a little biased um, on how you right, perceive right. the patient's doing. So I generally have them fill out an outcomes instrument, and a lot of times I'll have them do it before they have the injection. I'll have them repeat the the instrument um, after they've had the injection, and so I can get some objective way of measuring how well these kids are responding to their their steroids. Yeah, and 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 you've had some success with it. I, I and I imagine some some other practitioners have has have had success as well. What about in the last question, Doctor Anderson? What about um, when it comes to educating uh, the patient, the child, and the parents about how um, they can help manage the pain as well, like when they go home? Absolutely. I think you know one of the things that I oftentimes will have to tell my athletes in particular is they need to take a break. They gotta they gotta stop their activity that's exacerbating their symptoms. But also, I think the parents just need to maintain a positive attitude. You know, be encouraging, but yeah, at the same time, obviously sympathetic and empathetic towards their child. Um, and I th- I think you just have to be you know helpful. And 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 I think the other thing is the parents can be very um, key in, in in helping the child just kind of manage their activities of daily living, you know, if, if you're um, uh, just being helpful. It's oftentimes hard for these kids to bend forward, to pick things up off the floor, grab their backpack and things like that. So the parents can be, you know, helpful as far as just helping the child while they're really symptomatic. Yeah. Maybe decrease the size of some of those backpacks the kids carry around a lot yeah, of stuff. Certainly, yeah, certainly, yeah. Yeah, decreasing the burden that they're of, of the weight they're, they're carrying. But, you know, um, certainly the parents can be key is to, you know, administering the, the, the anti-inflammatory medication with food right. and water and things like that and making it a more safe environment. Well, Dr. Anderson, listen, I want to thank you for coming on the show and thank you for the work that you are doing at um, Children's Mercy Kansas City. Uh, you're listening to Transformational Pediatrics or Children's Mercy. Uh, for more information, you can go to childrensmercy.org. That's childrensmercy.org. I'm Dr. Mike Smith. Thanks for listening.